Hello, and welcome to NextQuest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. Today on the show, I welcome Marshall Lyles, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist Supervisor, Registered Play Therapist Supervisor, and Emdria-approved consultant to talk about his practice and specialty, trauma-informed Santre and other expressive therapies. Welcome to Next Quest Podcast. Today I welcome to the show Marshall Lyles, LPC Supervisor, LMFT Supervisor, Registered Play Therapist Supervisor, and Emdria Approved Consultant. Wow, Marshall, that's a lot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He's going to be talking about his practice and specialty, trauma-informed Santre and other expressive therapies. Welcome to the show, Marshall. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here. You've been doing a lot lately, I hear. I have been. I've been keeping busy. So um, why don't we start off with the question, what are your credentials and experience? I know I just said a whole mouthful that I could barely even finish. How long did it take you to do all that? Um, well, I've, I've been practicing for uh, right at 20 years now, uh, and I, I come from a background in my master's program of family psychology. So I, I went to a program that was pure marriage and family therapy. Um, you know, in Texas, a, a lot of people who are marriage and family therapists might have gone to a professional counselor program, and then they have to do some additional classes to, to qualify for the MFT license. But I went to a school that was the other way around. It was traditionally marriage and family therapy. And those were all the theories I learned. Um, and then you did some extra work to get your LPC. Um, and I was lucky to be exposed to play therapy during, during that time. So I, even though I was marriage and family and I still see some couple clients, primarily I've been working with families and kids all the way through um, the EMDR, that, that trauma certification uh, didn't start until I was about halfway through my career. 
So the first half of my career was primarily just doing play and family counseling. And then the, the trauma certification came later. And the approved consultant, what, what does that mean for our listeners who don't know? Yeah, and in, in the world of EMDR specific training, which is um, a model, I know we'll get into more later about helping to heal and integrate trauma. Um, there, there's um, a regimented basic training that, that therapists have to go through that's 40 hours long in order to be trained and get to practice. After you're trained, you can choose to be certified and um, that means you've done some extra consultation and training. And then if you want to move on to have the ability to help get others certified, other therapists, then you can do some extra work to become a consultant. So it, it means I've been doing it a long time, um, basically is what it all adds up to. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so you said you primarily work with families and children. Uh, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why? I, not currently. Um, I, I did for a long time accept insurance. And then I, I took a hiatus from seeing clients for about a year, maybe a year and a half, um, where I was just writing and teaching and, and working on my PhD. Uh, and when I came back, uh, I, I knew I wanted to do things a little differently than before. Um, and there, that had to do with feeling a little bit more autonomous in my treatment plan and getting to, um, you know, recommend to people something that I really thought was in their best interest and not trying to work around um, insurance requirements. So I just decided I would go fee for service and then I would have a sliding scale that would allow me to see the, the same range of people that I would have been um, because accessibility is important to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I've, I've gone the autonomy route. Um, and, uh, and, uh, but I, I still, I, I still have one desire and I, and I think I'm probably going to eventually get credentialed to take Medicaid again. That's the one, that's the, the one that would that make access to the population that I, I most want to work with, especially foster children. Um, that, that one's important. And so as it is now, I can do private contracts with foster agencies and reduce my rate. And, um, but and, and I think I'm in a season of transition still with, with that part. I know a lot of folks are doing that, that are kind of in transition right now with insurance just because of COVID and kind of how they've been handling everything. Um, so you answered my next question, which was, do you have a sliding scale? Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments? I do. I, I'm, my, I'm, I'm not traditional in most ways in the way that I do therapy. You, you can see my background. <laughs> I know yes. other people can't. Uh, so I, I practice. It satisfies, it really, sorry, it really satisfies like my, like, need to have things in order and it, it just it looks beautiful <laughs> <laughs> it is it is important to me that if you're going to offer art to people as an option for healing and learning uh, then the art needs to be artistically displayed and and that's just something that is important to me so i i 
I do practice non-traditionally for a lot of reasons and a lot of um, things that I'm sure you'll, you'll learn as we go. But one of the things is about my schedule because I, I do have book deadlines and I um, teach these intensive events. And so my schedule flexes week to week. And so the clients I end up taking um, we, in our intake call, one of the things I say is, um, is predictability in an appointment time important to you? Because I'm, I would probably be a difficult therapist. Um, and so the people who usually find me are ones who also have schedules like mine, where we just continually are working. And so when, when it's a normal week, I try not to work weekends or weeknights. I, I do try to save that for family and rest, but um, most weeks for me are not normal. Uh, so it's a bit all over the place. Okay. Okay. Um, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? I like this question. Uh, this is one <laughs> of the things I'm always curious about with other people. Um, I, I think technically it, it was my first career. It's, it's just not what I thought I was going to do. And there was a, a last minute change. Um, of course I had a, a million jobs um, as a teenager and then young adult going through college and, and even through grad school. But my undergrad degree was communication in English and basically journalism. And I was going into newspaper work. That's what I had been um, working for. And I was the editor of my school paper. And I, I thought I was going to be a writer. Um, that was the plan. And it was a, a last minute that like the, the beginning of my senior year during that fall semester, my journalism advisor um, sat with me and said, um, I think you want to be a therapist. You know, your writing is good, but you're writing, you're writing like a therapist. Are you, are you, <laughs> are you sure you, you don't want to explore that? And I don't, I don't come from a, a part of the world that had therapists as an option for careers. And, and so I, I didn't know anything about it. And so she arranged for me to go meet with the director of the MFT program that I ended up at. And um, all of it just, it, it felt like it was happening in me and to me. I don't remember it feeling volitional. It's uh -huh. more of a, a pull of something that felt like I stumbled into, but as I look back over time, I can see that things were being arranged in a way that was providential. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just kept taking the next step. Um, when I started grad school, I still had no actual idea what therapy was. Um, <laughs> it, it took me some time to grow into that. So what drew you to being a therapist? It sounds like it was, like, I'm trying to search for a word for it. Um, it's the word accident. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think I wanted to help people with my writing. You know, that's what I thought journalism was, was to inspire and to create and to help people feel like they have power and um, voice and, um, like I was a representative of that. Like I, I was resonating that, you know, from the people I was writing about and for. And 
And so from that point of view, it wasn't a hard step into to, to therapy. And I, I, I do remember in my communications degree, we had classes on interpersonal communication, especially within family and then small group. And there was a whole semester we spent on listening science. And those were the things that I was in love with, you know, that, that I just, I felt like the most natural version of me was finally um, stepping up. I, I, I just, like I mentioned at that point, I had no idea that those things really probably belonged more at home in a different path. Um, mm-hmm. You know, thankfully there was someone who helped, who, who saw what was in me and, and what I was inspired by and, and knew a place where I would be ultimately more happy. That's awesome. It sounds like you wound up right where you needed to be. I think so. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, so I've been living in Austin um, or around uh, ever since I finished my master's program. So my, in, in essence, my entire career has been here. Um, and my uh, kids are grown-ish. And, <laughs> and, and so we are um, attempting launching, but, you know, trying to accomplish that during COVID. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, I have um, always loved the arts. And so I... Um, a lot of my writing is is poetry, and I I get to work in the clay, um, and and so those are some of my my favorite hobbies. Um, I love comedy, and just I'm in love with how people put words together and mm-hmm. and different different things that add up to funny and and the points of view that are involved. And so I um, spend spend a lot of time. Um, watching comedy or reading comedy and thinking like dreaming about being a, a ghostwriter for comedians <laughs> and those sorts of things. Um, and I, I, I'm pretty um, sociopolitically curious. And so I spend a lot of time reading and, and, um, and trying to stay informed. And um, I've, my my family is kind of activist minded and and so we we have a lot of those conversations at home and so it's it's a it feels like a constant lovely mix of um you know the lighthearted um kind of silliness and goofiness with you know trying to m- maintain some kind of connection to meaning making of the hard um and uh, that that's kind of sums up me. And the, the Venn diagram of that, as I think about it, is a little bit of being playful with um, what some people would call, you know, darker parts. But I don't, I don't know that I believe that that's really a thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so that 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 part of me is probably what leads. And I will tell you um, that I think people get confused by me. I've learned this over time because of how I sound and how I look, there's kind of a gentleness um, that, that I think is the first thing that people come in contact with. 
but there's this, you know, sarcasm right behind it. And, and so I, I watch people try to process um, that. And, and that those are some of my favorite parts of myself. And that it's part of what I think can, can create healing um, in others. And I think that's where I get to play in the art so much is those parts get to sit beside each other. So, um, easily and and they uh, care for one another in in ways that i can't always figure out how to do in everyday life so i reach i reach for expressive arts for that you are living the life marshall (laughs) (laughs) it's a good life i would agree you get to do things that you enjoy not just for yourself but in helping others as well you know I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, we, as therapists, we, you know, need to spend our time doing things that bring us rest and energy and reconnect us with gratitude. And, and so it's, it's wonderful when those things then overlap with how we're able to offer healing to other people. There's, there's some congruence that can start to show up. Yeah. That's awesome. I hope, you know, 10 years down the line, I'm in a similar position. (laughs) Um, Now, to ask you what modalities you draw upon, that's a very broad, broadly answered question for you. Um, Because from what I've read about you, you operate from kind of a variety of perspectives. Um, Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, I'm I'm an integrationist for sure. I I come from a therapy point of view, I come from a systems background. And so that means all of the clinical approaches I learned, even when I'm working with an individual adult or teenager, I'm still thinking of the system that they operate within. And um, that that's primarily how I was trained in the, in the models that I was taught to think about. But since I was play therapy focused um, early, um, even when I'm with adults, I, I'm thinking in those terms. I was first trained in what's called Adlerian play. And um, Adlerian play therapy is, is named after um, the, the man from whom the, the ideas of, of this um, clinical approach come from, Alfred Adler. And it's, it's all about how an individual developed aspects of self in context to their comfort with how they needed family and community. And so what was happening in the system that impacted them? And then how did that um, create um, uh, individual personality and expression um, that that's all about one's um, refusal to acknowledge their, you know, social connectedness or their comfort with it. And we're all constantly being pulled along that line. So that that's how I came into the clinical world. Um, traditional play and Santre um, as the articulation of that model of, of Adlerian. Um, then, um, and Adlerian is this phase approach that, that you watch people heal in phases. And, and what's asked of you as therapists, be it non-directive and to follow the client or directive and and have moments of bringing structure to to the work 
it's meant to be fluid based on the person and where you are in the phase. Um, so whenever I started feeling like I needed more trauma uh, training based on who I was working with and I found EMDR, the two kind of blended um, because EMDR is this phased approach as well where the aspect of the, of the therapist is um, to follow the client, but then to have little moments of structure and then to follow the client. Um, and so EMDR and Adlerian in my mind sit right on top of one another and they, they structure how I think about people, um, but then how I interact with people would be through these artistic approaches of we do, we then implement those thoughts and ideas and processes through um, sand work, through poetry, through art, um, uh, and through play. Awesome. Yeah. It's a, a very integrated approach. I, I appreciate that. Um, what drew you to these modalities? I, I knew even, you know, going back to my communications um, studies that I did better when I was helping to shape energy instead of trying to create energy. You know, I'm a, I'm a better uh, receiver and then um, filter and, and return back like a resonator than to come in as an expert and to, to lead. And so I, I, I think from the beginning, I was looking for ways of thinking and ways of being with people that were a, a little more collaborative and um, a little more about transformation instead of initiation, just because of how I move through the world. Uh, and so the, those, those models and those expressions of those models um, found me in my, in when I was trying to open myself up to what would it look like to be the most comfortable version of myself when trying to ask people to trust me with their healing. Love it. Um, now, what, what is the theory behind play therapy? Yeah, play in general believes that children's first language isn't words. Um, it's, you know, expression, it's physical expression and, and playfulness and and they are able to come into contact with these complicated parts of self um, when they're able to put it into play motion and play behavior. So, you know, we watch little kids, um, very young kids start to play house when they're trying to figure out family dynamics and they're trying to figure out gender and they're trying to figure out um, responsibility, like in all of these heavy, important aspects of identity and um, expression, they, they play to try and think about that. They couldn't engage you in a straightforward dialogue for 30 minutes, but they can play for 30 minutes and engage those same ideas. Um, so that, that's the, the thinking behind a play-based approach. I, I think um, it moves into expressive play for adults it's the same thing you know most often the parts of adults that are wounded are their child parts 
And, and so I like having an approach that doesn't privilege the verbal, not assuming that the parts of them that need healing are connected to their 30-year-old brain, that, that it, it might need, you know, some hands in clay so that, that it finds its way into expression first in physical form, and then we can find our way into words. Yeah, that's a great opportunity for some inner child work there, yeah. using that approach. I love that. Absolutely. Um, now, what I'm going to skip around our questions a little bit. What role do miniatures play in Santray therapy? Yeah, Santray therapy is useful for all ages, but um, a lot of times traditionally you wouldn't use it with younger children. That would be the one population. Um, it, uh, it, it usually starts with older children through adults, and it involves a literal tray of sand. Um, sometimes water is used, and then there are all these figures or images or miniatures, depending on what you want to call them, that um, that sand therapists have on their shelves that, that represent often different categories, you know, people and nurture and aggression and and animals um, that are, you know, comfy and cozy towards um, exotic and wild um, nature, uh, home items, and and the, those those miniatures become symbols, so that abstract internal concepts can be placed outside of the person and into this tray, and. Uh, I, I think what miniatures often do is it allows a client to be curious about a part of self for longer um, without bumping into shame. You know, a lot of times what you see is someone start to talk about, you know, a mistake that they frequently make or um, a wound that they carry from childhood. And when they start making too much internal contact with it, they quickly will collapse on you or um, want to bring a, a defender or protector in to, to talk for it. But whenever it's taken outside of the person temporarily and put into a symbol form, I, I find that people can, main, can maintain compassion uh, and curiosity about that figure for longer than they would with just talking directly to that part of self. Uh, so the externalization um, is probably the the greatest gift that the miniatures bring to our sand work. And now you have a miniature store slash miniature subscription box, right? Yeah, that's that's one of my many <laughs> my many ventures. <laughs> I know. I've I've kind of followed since you opened up the store and then the subscription box. I was like, like, wow, that subscription box is such a great idea. Um, <laughs> do you make them yourself? I I for the store and for the box, I make some of the the figures. Everything I make is out of clay. Um, I hand build, um, and then uh, we we try to have a mixture of things on on the. Sanctuary miniature store that are you know affordable, which would usually mean that they've been bought wholesale or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, we we actually do a lot of sourcing from secondhand stores. We spend a lot of time trying to make sure that things that already exist in the world are getting utilized, and um, 
and then we try to work also with artists um, and, and to have different therapists in particular who are artists and, and need that kind of expression in their life to, to contribute to both the store and the box. Um, but then we, we also are constantly trying to discover um, communities, um, in particular international communities. So, much, so many of the beautiful images we can use in sand you know, come from other cultures, but you, and you want to take the beauty and inspiration that has to offer, but really guard against appropriation. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the ways that we try to do that and um, rather imperfectly, um, but try to do that is to buy as many of our cultural items directly from artists and communities um, for whom the, uh, would be representative and uh, members of that community. And, and so some of the items will then be a little more expensive um, as, a, as a means of, of supporting um, those, those communities. In the box that goes out each month for those who are subscribers, um, there are around seven miniatures unless one of them extra larger, um, more expensive than there may be six or five. And I make one item, um, I, my wife and I make those together actually, um, one item for each box. And then we have one guest artist um, in the box. And then the other five are items we've curated from other sources. And then each box has a theme. And I write prompts, you know, so that therapists um, could, um, and in this pandemic, we've actually had a couple of people who are in SAM therapy with therapists and they are wanting to have objects at home. Um, oh, wow so that during the virtual work, they can have some of their own. Um, but the there's a prompt sheet. So our most recent um, theme was what lies beyond. And um, there were kind of some mysterious figures and um, some imaginative figures. Um, and then I write three prompts for, if you want to create a world that explores this theme, here's an example of some ways you could do that. And um, it's a fun project. Um, I did not realize how time-consuming it was <laughs> going to be. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you've been very thoughtful about that project. It's very multifaceted in terms of where you get things from. Um, you know, I think it's such a great idea. And I think it's amazing that you, yourself, in all your infinite time, are able to <laughs> make those for the, the monthly boxes. Uh, well, that's I, a lot. It is a lot. And I, I could not underscore enough how much my wife does to facilitate all of that. And she also has a, you know, a, a day job. So we, this, we, you know, I have my clinical and consultation work as my day job and she has her day job. And this is kind of our shared um, venture. And um, she, she is, she is the one who often finds um, these, these beautiful other objects. And, and then I do more of the creative um, part. So yeah, we, we're, we're a good team. It sounds like it. Um, so tell me a little bit about sand tray therapy and how it works. Yeah, uh, so Sanitary therapy has actually been around for a really, really, really long time. Um, 
and for for whatever reason it's it's having a bit of a renaissance right now and so i i i think newer clinicians or clients might think it's a recent um creation uh, based based on its popularity right now but um, margaret lowenfeld the the creator uh, was starting a hundred years ago to to write about some of these ideas and um to her her realization was as someone living in london she was a pediatrician and psychoanalyst as someone living in london during the period of the world wars was that she was witnessing so much trauma and she realized that there needed to be um, a, a way to accomplish supporting people processing of this pain without overwhelming their systems and, and started experimenting with the externalization of choosing symbols and objects. And then over time discovered the power of then getting to place them in a container so that they're held in this defined space um, the, the, you know, those are some of still the, the imagery and the words that we use in therapy. We talk about containment, you know, making mm -hmm. sure things are held. We talk about grounding and, you know, sand trays full of sand, which is the ground. And so mm -hmm. the sensory element that people have in that grounding contact and then the externalization. Um, so I, I think what neuroscience and, and trauma research has done in the last couple of decades has just popularized, you know, some of these concepts that she brought forward just on, you know, sheer necessity of observation during a tragic time in history. Now, I have a little bit of experience with Sandray. I know that the ideal, like it, it gets down to an ideal size of the Sandray and yeah. an ideal like color for the bottom of the you know the, the tray to like simulate water you know um yeah. it's it's very interesting to me how those things you know became so specific <laughs> they, they did you know centray centray is the word um for any theory um that uses um sand um for their therapy except the jungians and Jungian sand work is called sand play. And so, so many of the specifics um, that we have really adopted within the broader sand therapy community come from Jungian work and um, the, you know, this regulated rectangle size of the tray and specific kind of blue for water and sky and, and the walls and the underneath. Um, you know, over, I think in recent time, you know, and honestly, when you start trying to research something, you have to standardize some things in order to make sure that those variables um, are considered. But I, I think over time, uh, you know, people have started to experiment with what 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 does it feel like to work in a rectangle tray versus a round tray, and and there's there's been more offering and shapes, and and then a lot of people have something in between they go hexagon or octagon so they still have some corners but they have that more mandala shape and mm -hmm. um and and so i i offer some of all the shapes um and uh and yet uh, have to be really conscientious of, about things like size of trays based on who you're working with because they need enough room to fully express but you know if it's so big 
that they're overwhelmed um, and they feel pressure, then we're, we're, we're running into issues either way. And, and so you have to consider, are we working as a family or a group or individual and mm-hmm. um, all of those things. But um, it's one of the things I wish I could show everyone. I have all of my trays on a wall and so they're, they're hung. Um, and wow. so I, I have rectangles and I have rounds and I have octagons and I even have a couple that are in the shape of houses. Like, wow. um, and in case you're needing to create a sand world in, in something that is home um, to Very get to work. That out. Yeah. When you said octagon, I immediately thought like MMA fights. <laughs> 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 I, think, I think that energy can sometimes show up in, in, in the sand tray, but that is really funny to think of a couple of sand therapists getting locked in the ring. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so, you know, you work from a trauma-informed perspective. What makes an approach trauma-informed and in what ways is your work trauma-informed? Uh, yeah, trauma-informed is just not really a regulated term, you know, and, and so um, my advice to clients is always to do exactly what you just did um, and to ask what, what a therapist means by that. Um, you know, in general, what you would hope that it means is um, a clinician is understanding um, that the trauma has in, uh, influenced um, the way that meaning is made in someone's life. And so that there is, you know, gentleness and safety privileged in the exploration and titration into um, exploring that. Um, but there are many approaches, you know, within that realm that call themselves trauma-informed. I specifically practice EMDR, um, which um, as a trauma-based modality talks about the importance of making sure you have history and relationship and some felt safety before you would ever move into um, exploring specific memories that were more rooted and defined by pain. and then you allow the client to be in charge as it, of as much as the process as possible so that they are making contact with that on their terms. Um, and my belief is clients are so much better equipped to re-enter the world and to handle whatever comes next into their life if they uh, ended therapy with increased ability to make meaning instead of having someone having made meaning for them. Uh, that it's, it's more, we're building an infrastructure. While we're, we're healing specific events, we're, we're trying to create an infrastructure of resilience that allows you to then take that process into the present and, and um, be able to encounter painful events with less chance of that than becoming traumatic stress because of the mechanisms you have in place to deal with it. Got it. Um, what you, you touched on this earlier about what Adlerian play is in what ways would you say it differs from other approaches? I know you said it aligns pretty well with EMDR, but how might it, you know, differ? 
Yeah, especially within the play world, um, many models, not all, but many models kind of nestle themselves as non-directive or directive. Um, and then there, there can even be kind of this battle and non-directive being the word that's used to say that the therapist is um, really trusting that the client will bring what healing elements are needed and, and you follow them each step of the way. And then directive would be the therapist, you know, constructs the nature of the sessions, leads the client um, through process. And um, I, I get a little soapboxy about this um, subject. <laughs> and so I'm having to talk with myself in my head right now. Um, Take it away, Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, th I think that there can be sometimes a little bit of a, there can be risk to, you know, a, a therapist using a word like saying I'm a non-directive or I'm a directive therapist, because for one, that, that just describes one small part of your overall theoretical approach. You know, it, it, it shouldn't describe your entire approach. It's, it's just one small part and you can't even people, who practice models that are primarily emphasize non-directive or not directive, no one's ever fully either of those things. Right. You know, like it's, it's as in all things that we're learning, we need to think with non-dualistic attitudes and, you know, avoid the binary of that. And, and so if I'm saying I'm only non-directive, well, can you be? Um, because you just reflected an emotion of the client and a different non-directive therapist might've reflected a different emotion because it's still filtered through you. You're still bringing a word that is your person um, and which is somewhat directive, you know, always it, it's impossible and the same with directive. Um, and, and so Adlerian, I, I think, welcomes that, you know, doesn't see that as a dilemma to be solved. It's part of the philosophy of saying, right, um, we, we have to hold these things and, and know what we believe about the nature of how humans were created over time, like personality structure and um, uh, systemically informed beliefs. Um, and, and then you trust each moment that the process will emerge um, while, you know, holding awareness of the general phase uh, of therapy uh, of treatment that you're in. Um, so I, I, I think Adlerian play does a really good job. It was created by a woman named Terry Cotman. She took Alfred Adler's adult model and then brought it into the child um, approach. It, it also really, really strongly underscores the the healing power of accessing innate creativity um mm -hmm. and that all people are creative and i mean that that is clearly important to me and um so i i think that's also one of its distinctives cool very cool um now moving to talking about expressive therapies for a second uh what would be considered an expressive therapy yeah that's also a good question because sometimes you would hear expressive therapies and sometimes expressive art therapies mm -hmm. and sometimes creative therapies. 
I mean, who knows? Uh, I, sometimes they're used interchangeably. And then there are some experts in the field who have been trying to say, oh, no, here are different um, categories. But in general, Kathy Malchiotti, who's one of the thought leaders in this area, says an expressive therapy is any modality that introduces action into psychotherapy. And so that could be play, could be sand, it could be art, um, all kinds of art. It could be poetry and bibliotherapy of other kinds. Um, it could be music, it could be dance. Um, anything that says um, it's not just words that are gonna be um, used in this space. Um, that, uh, that's the, the general um, uh, definition for an expressive therapy. Okay, and that, that basically answered my next question, which was what differentiates expressive arts from expressive therapies? Yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I, I like that definition a lot too. Mm -hmm. um, now, you've mentioned that you enjoy writing poetry. Would you be willing to share a poem you've written? Sure, yeah. I, awesome. I, I uh, enjoy writing a lot and and i enjoy um in therapy you know creating with clients poems and um watching people realize that they had an inner poet all along is one of the biggest delights you could ever um, have i'm currently in this program um so even though i've done poetry in therapy for a while and i've been writing my whole life um having it was only in the last year or so that I started sharing my own work and, and I'm in this um, three-year program called the Institute for Poetic Medicine and um, it's a lot of people who are wanting to bring poetry as healer in into the community so some therapists and some other professions are in, in the program and one of the requirements is that you read your work out loud um, oh, wow. and so over the last year I've grown immensely more comfortable um, with that because they say um, you you need to not just see your words in written form you need to experience them when you say them to someone else and mm -hmm. it's a different process and so I'll I'll just pull up the one that I wrote more most recently um, awesome. yeah. and I, I was trying to um, explore my relationship with um, risk actually. So this one's called Risk. My ancestors taught me to be an early riser. Even as a kid, eyes would pop open and smile crept in because it was silent. It was the only time my frenzied childhood home was quiet. In the stillness, no one could shut down a dream or redirect an outrageous plan. In the quiet, risk could be befriended because others' fear didn't interfere. In the quiet, I could sense risk in my current spot. Past and future shared a bowl of cereal and ancestors felt alive as they would whisper intuition and give permission to instinct. Risk and I played in the mornings and my nerves danced with delight. Risk taught me art. Risk inspired discovery. Risk told me the truth. In the quiet, Risk began to shape the ancestor I would one day become. 
making my spirit ready to meet a future early riser right in their courage spot. That was awesome, Marshall. Thank you. Thank you. You're very good at that. I appreciate that. Um, now, you've been working on something huge for a while. Uh, tell us about the workshop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm imagining people hearing me for the first time and trying to keep up with how many jobs I have. Um, uh, <laughs> just um, as many certifications <laughs> and licenses <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well the the workshop has been a dream for a while and you know i'm i've been really really fortunate noah to travel um all over the world and, and I, I never would have as a kid you know and i come from rural east texas and I didn't even know how to dream of the things I would get to see um, and traveling all over our country as well and teaching trauma on trauma and attachment and expressive um, therapies. And I love that so much, but there are a couple of things that started um, shape ish started shaping in me. One is I realized I wanted a place to create and I wanted a place for others to create like I had seen in some of my overseas travel um, therapists in particular, um, uh, but to be able to hold events um, for, for um, all communities. Also, I, I have um, muscular dystrophy. I've had it my whole life. And so, you know, I always had an awareness in the back of my mind that the travel was going to have a shelf life. You know, it comes at a cost to my body. And um, so I, I knew I needed kind of, to start thinking through second half of my career and, and trying to decide um, how am I going to keep getting to engage in these things with some longevity. Um, so all of that came together in, in this place that um, we now call the workshop um, that was designed to be a teaching center where I could create a space maybe that would become an attraction for other people to travel to, to come here to, to learn. And that not only I would teach, I'm, I'm gonna bring other people in to teach programming here. And then I'll just have people who might wanna rent it out. Um, it's very artsy looking. It's um, in, in East Austin, um, deep, deep East and um, in an old mission style building and it's colorful walls and, um, and it's just, built to be creative and to have all of the arts available to you at your fingertips. If you want to write, there are journals everywhere. If you want to build a sand world, there are trays everywhere. If you want to make play in the clay, the canvas tables are waiting for you. And, and so that we can teach any art form with ease and with comfort instead of, you know, converting church basements and hotel ballrooms into kind of good enough spaces. Um, but also wanting it to, feel like a community center, you know, like maybe there are days a month where it's not being used for training. It's just um, therapists, for example, having a time to come and create together um, and be together or opening it up for community events um, in, in the same spirit. Um, so it's, it's now right like in the last few weeks, we're officially open. It just, you know, that doesn't mean a ton right now in the season since we're, <laughs> 
all still afraid of each other and um, <laughs> trying to figure out, you know, how to start very safely doing some very distanced events. And, and believe me, as, as someone who's a member of a vulnerable medical population, I am having to think very, very cautiously about, mm -hmm. about how to do all that. And so we're going to, you know, have a couple of, of really controlled events to experiment. Um, one of the things I, I realized teaching what I teach, um, I have to feel present. And so if I'm more concerned um, about the virus than I am the material, um, I, I know I'm not going to do good work. So we're just going to start kind of titrating in and seeing if we can find ways that the building can be of service to the community, but then also just patiently waiting for um, the day when we all emerge from the season and, and get to um, start creating together. I, I think that is a fantastic idea. I love how, you know, you're also using it as a space where therapists can, you know, essentially do their own therapy in being creative. I think that's really awesome. Yeah, that's the hope. It's, you know, wounded healers need a place to, to go share in that space together. And we, we really hope that, that that's the vibe that is felt. Awesome. Awesome. Um, well, you know, in talking about Santre and play therapy and other expressive therapies, it sounds like it's something that can benefit everybody, no matter your age or, you know, issue, really. Yeah. I, I, I do think that, you know, my, my specific population has often been people who are attachment wounded. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, if you've been hurt at the hands of a caregiver um, or if there are complications, you know, I, I would have been considered attachment wounded, even though I have wonderful available parents just growing up with this illness meant that there was going to be a barrier to how I perceived caregiving. Um, and so for those populations uh, have been how I use the work, um, you know, from kids all the way to adults. Um, but, you know, it's being used in virtually every way imaginable to serve, you know, almost every community. Cool. What would you say are some misconceptions about Santre play therapy, all the stuff we've been talking about? Oh, I... I mean, one jumps into my head very, very quickly. Um, I, I think um, clients and therapists don't, don't always understand that playful can still be painful. You know, the, the engaging, I've, I've watched all age people go to the, the shelf for the first time to choose miniatures and break down crying at the sight of one symbol, you know, uh, uh, I, I, I think that's the strongest misunderstanding is that you're somehow going to be less impacted or um, maybe that it's going to feel a little um, childish uh, instead of understanding that using metaphor, even though it's indirect, it can be paradoxically more intense and more powerful and needs to be you know, held with care and, and really proper training. Uh, that's, that's easily the biggest misconception that, that I run into 
kind of with repetition. Got it. Okay. Um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Yeah, I can't imagine at this point many um, vulnerable populations that I, I haven't had the fortune of working with. And it's always been important to me to use, you know, part of my continuing education to make sure that I'm, I'm staying informed about um, emerging information on vulnerable communities. You know, this year is a really good example of that. There's, mm -hmm. there's so much affecting so many, many communities. And as a result, you know, there's more things entering the literature and the professional literature and there are more trainings um, than I've ever seen in my career around topics. And, um, you know, so I think it's my responsibility to um, stay informed and not to expect my clients to inform me um, uh, about, about those dynamics. And then at the same time, not to think that anything I'm learning from one person or one book applies to everyone in that community. So to, you know, get my own education started and then to be open to the lived experience of the person in front of me um, and then to make sure that they feel really at ease um, as a member of a vulnerable community, you, you have a lot more to risk by showing up in therapy. Um, and I think that's my job to absorb that and to, to be aware of it. So I, I feel at ease um, um, on, on my side of the relationship. I hope I create ease. Um, you know, I'm, I hold a lot of privilege um, in, in the world. And, and I have this one area of my disability that, that dumps in, uh, jumps into a, a vulnerable population. And even with all this privilege, I sense, I, 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 since what happens in me when I interact with the world that doesn't understand how vulnerable that feels. And so when you start layering intersectionality on top of that, you know, I, I hope I'm doing um, a good enough space and to remain humble, you know, like to realize that there are going to be ruptures that I create. And, and, and my job is to try and facilitate a kind of relationship where a client would feel empowered to name those ruptures and, and to speak their need when they come and then for it to be my responsibility to initiate repair. And so I, it's my desire, um, though I, I know I, I live that out very imperfectly. Well, I think we're all works in progress when it comes to those things. Um, but I appreciate everything you said there. Uh, I know people listening to us can't see me, but I was nodding my head so hard that it probably would have fallen off if I had kept doing it. Um, <laughs> uh, how, how would you say your clients would describe or experience you, Marshall? <laughs> uh, that's funny. I, well, I, it's weird to say about yourself, but I, people do think I'm funny. Like I, that, that feedback I get, um, a lot, I think they, they experience me as, um, playful, um, and 
I hope authentic and available. Um, it would be you know, something that would be important to me to try and continually foster any of those traits though, you know, they, they require tending. Um, and, and so if any season of life where I, I am not taking care of myself in the, in the way that I should, I think those things start to show up less. Um, and, and then I feel that in the relationship. Um, so I have to kind of retreat into care to make sure I, I nurture all those parts. Um, and that would be another word. And I think probably pretty nurturing is, is something people, people get from me. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Absolutely. Yeah. I I have a hard time understanding the other answer. It's one of the things I want to, I want to understand, but I, I'm not sure I'll ever, I will ever get um, stoicism in the work with you. Yeah, no, I, I don't know if that's healthy. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you define holding space for someone? Yeah, it, you know, there's an internet energetic exchange between people always. And, and so when I'm, I'm in the responsibility of healer, um, which I really believe is about creating a space where people can understand how we're all healers. And, um, but when people are trusting me in that role, I, I think my job is to monitor the relational environment so that it remains something that is capable of containing whatever would need to be introduced. Um, and to then receive um, the client's um, delight, pain, um, search, um, frustration, and any of the things that, that are coming out in whatever expression of need, the, that if I've created a holding environment for that, that it, it crosses the space and it, it comes into me and I get to be a part of breathing that back out in a slightly different way um, so that the client can then make contact with themselves in a way that feels safer, um, but still um, genuine. Um, so that, that, I think that's one of our biggest responsibilities as therapists. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Do your own therapy, without a doubt. Uh, it was one of my first supervisors required that of anyone who was going to be in her supervision. And that there's no substitute. Um, it, like it, it, it doesn't have to be every week for the rest of your life as a therapist, but you need to know you know, who is the therapist you can go to in any season. You need to know who do you seek for consultation. You need to know who are your peers in your community. Um, you, it, you've got to access other professionals in order to keep um, doing this job without burnout and without your own stuff interfering in the work. Um, so right. easily the best advice I ever got. Never trust a therapist who hasn't done their own therapy. That's what I say. <laughs> I completely agree with that. <laughs> um, 
What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Um, I've learned that what safe means is very individual. Um, it's individualized and requires um, a, a significant amount of trust for that to even get to enter into the relationship as a topic. Um, and that that's righteous with that. Um, I've learned that when people have protective parts of self coming forward, that they're always earned, that they did not get there without a journey and they would not be there unless they thought they were needed. Um, and so compassion is always um, deserved. Um, and I've, I've learned a lot about from clients about how important it is to use your voice, you know, to know who you are and to not stay silent about things that are important. Um, and that that's really, I think, shaped in me as a direct result of, of our profession. Okay. Now you're a very busy guy. Yeah. What do you do to take care of yourself? Um, <laughs> well, let's see. What do I intend to do versus what do I do? Is probably uh, what I'm actually do is um, my mornings are very important to me. So I get up early. Um, I try to start in the quiet as often as possible. Um, it's often when I write um, or read, you know, read non academic, non professional material, more poetry or, you know, like inspirational thought leaders. And um, it's when I journal. Um, and, and so that uh, my morning ritual is part of, if I get, if I get away from that for very long, I get um, more easily distracted um, mm -hmm. and overwhelmed. Um, my the art, you know, getting to be in the clay, um, watching shows, not even shows like silly, like, like going down, YouTube wormholes with my children, <laughs> you know, like, like that kind of like, uh, playful silliness is important. Um, and like when, when humans weren't, you know, heat seeking missiles, <laughs> uh, I, I uh, traveled a lot. Um, and Dan Siegel writes about, and I can't remember which of his books I read this in, but you know, that we, we talk about bottom up processing about trying to have moments where we're sensory first and not cognitive first. And, and he talks about how traveling to an unknown place forces you to be in that place because the smells and sounds and tastes are so different. Um, and um, it was, uh, it is, it's still something important to me. And right now I'm just holding on to the memories of, and so I find myself writing a lot about places I've been so that I can try and keep it alive uh, in me. And I love to cook. I, I, I love to cook. Yeah. What's That's your probably, favorite thing to cook? Do you have one? I, I go through seasons and I, every year I try to challenge myself to like become um, more proficient in, in something. And 
And so this year I've been working with curry, like different Ooh. curries from different, because um, um, Thai food is my favorite cuisine, but um, Indians right up there. And, um, and so I've been playing with curry, um, but what I'm ready to take on, and I'm gonna require a lot of help, um, and this one is I think I'm ready to try mole. Oh, wow. And I'm a little intimidated by it, um, but I'm, I think that's the next, I think that's the next goal. I haven't had mole in years. Ooh. So good. So good, it is so good. <laughs> I'm one of those people that can't eat all things and, and I, I think you have an illness like mine and it just starts to, um, you know, develop some autoimmune sort of things. And so I developed an allergy to wheat many years ago and dairy. And, and so I'm, I'm often also trying to bake things that you really can't get a lot of the same type of quality in, in the food I can eat. And so this year I was dedicated to biscuits. Like I'm going to make a gluten-free dairy-free biscuit that tastes like a biscuit. Um, and I have discovered why there aren't a lot of those that you find. In the- <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really hard. <laughs> it's not <laughs> impossible. So I've had varying degrees of success with that. That's very cool. <laughs> you know, when you were talking about um, waking up early, it's funny because this morning when when I forgot my keys to my office and then had to run back home after getting to the office and realizing I forgot said keys, um, I was like, you know, I bet Marshall is one of those people who wakes up like at five in the morning. Because you had, you had messaged, you had emailed me asking me if there was going to be video involved because you were going to be in the clay that morning. Um, so I was like, I, I bet he wakes up so early. I do, but I, I go to bed early too. <laughs> so I I do operate at a senior citizen pace. Um, that is really, uh, I I like to be in my room by nine, just like, even if I'm not asleep, just nesting. <laughs> I like lamps on and lights off and, you know, books available. And the, the, I, I, I do start shutting down rather early, but I get up ridiculously early earlier than five sometimes sometimes a little sometimes (laughs) a little earlier um it 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 is it's just always been like the poem said it's right it's been in me since i i can't remember a time that i didn't um i and it it if and it feels good to wake up to me Mm -hmm. you know i i watch other people in my family <laughs> who don't have that same <laughs> experience, but I, I do enjoy, I do enjoy um, those quiet early mornings. You've lived like half your day before I've even started mine. <laughs> and then consequently 2 PM hits. And I, when I, if I try to write, like if I hadn't get my deadline done or something for the day and I'm, I, it takes me 10 times as long to mm-hmm. accomplish something. Um, as I would have, you know, at 6 a.m. And yeah, it's, I, I think I'm wired, oddly. Some people are. I, I don't get it. My dad is similar. He'll go to bed at like 
eight or nine and wake up sometimes as early as three. Um, it's, he's always been that way. It's yeah. just a wired thing, I think. I think so too. Like uh, my brain thinks I'm a shift worker. I just never have been. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really enjoy mornings. I just can't do them. <laughs> um, okay, let's see. Next question. How do you define happiness? Hmm. I would say it's having gratitude within reach. You know, if, if I can think a grateful thought, I'm pretty connected to happiness. Um, I think it's feeling at ease with what's happening around you. Um, and I think happiness defined means understanding that you're not less happy because there's the presence of another emotion the, that I can be happy and grieving. Um, and I can be happy and disappointed. Um, so, it, you know, the, the more I make room for happiness, the more I realize it's, it's more cooperative than I originally thought in life as an emotion. Now here's a, a vulnerable question, as if some of these already haven't been. Um, what is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician to date? <laughs> oh, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the number of like urgent bathroom moments alone. Um, but that doesn't really embarrass me because I think growing up as a sick kid, like you, like you, you, your body never was kind of treated as your own, you know? And so you don't have quite the same relationship to that feeling overly vulnerable there, you know, one thing that happens that I feel really embarrassed by that another person probably wouldn't be is if I call a client a wrong name, Ooh. that really, um, uh, and, and not just embarrasses me, but it it kind of breaks my heart a little. Like uh, they are trusting me so much, and and it hasn't happened many times, but um, I, I have felt I have felt it when it happened. Um, oh, and um, one time this was in a group um, counseling, uh, completely split my pants. Oh, no. Like just <laughs> um, major, it was it was no the sound alone, and then I was like I tried to play it off at first, um, <laughs> like it wasn't happening, uh, and then yet anytime I moved, you heard a little bit more of a rip, you know, <laughs> and, and it just eventually it had to it had to be entered into <laughs> the out loud world of like all right let's go ahead and I'll have a laugh about this and I'm going to stay <laughs> seated and you're all going to have to leave first. <laughs> well handled, well handled. Um, well, is there anything else you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? Um, I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind is a little cheesy, but... Uh, 
I would want them to know something about them that, you know, that I haven't met you, but I think you're important enough to be heard. And I think you deserve to be seen um, and that your story matters. And, um, and that if I do my job well, I, I stay out of the way enough to just give you enough of me so that you feel those things are increasing in, in your life. Um, and that I would uh, just in general um, like to, to be in relationship, in contact, in support, even if it's invisible. You know, even if it's just some like energy exchange where, you know, someone hears something from our conversation today and then that causes them to think a thought that comes back towards me and you that, you know, I just want to stay open to um, either non-contact influence we will have each other or, you know, would welcome if anyone has a question or a desire to to have a conversation just to, to reach out. Love it. Thank you so much for being on the show, Marshall. It's yeah. It's a real pleasure. This is fun. This I've never done anything like this particular kind of interview. So I'm, I'm glad you've created this format to, to help people get a taste of what it would, would be like to really um, know a therapist. Um, so this is, this is um, well done. Well, thank you so much, Marshall, and thanks for being on the show. One last thing, where can people find you online? Yeah, if, uh, my website has all my links, uh, email and, and social media and things. It's marshalliles.com, so that's M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-L-Y-L-E-S.com. There's a lot of L's in the middle. You just power through, keep going. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Marshall. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I had a lot of fun and learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Stephanie Stuckel, LPC, to discuss her practice and specialty, counseling for chronic pain. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmit Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmit Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. Next Quest Podcasts brought to you by NextQuest Counseling, relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash nextquestpodcast, or making a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash about next quest podcast 
Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.